I said that. We're live. Thank you guys for coming back. Thank you for bearing with us. I uh, honestly, I'm going to go sit in a corner and I'm going to chase what I just listened to with a lovely episode of FedWatch. I'm going to pass the mic off to our fearless hosts, CK, Snark, and Ansel. What's up, y'all? Welcome back. We have an awesome show. We have a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, Matthew Pines, someone who has come onto the Bitcoin space in a fury with a bunch of an awesome ideas and great work being done. So we're really excited to have you, Matthew. And uh, yeah, I'll just pass it off to Ansel for uh, a little more context on the conversation. Yeah, Matthew, great to finally meet you. I want to start off with uh, getting some of your background and your path up to writing this paper. Certainly. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so I, uh, I've been a management consultant for about 10 years, uh, mostly doing consulting for the government, but for some private sector clients as well. Uh, my academic background, undergrad was in physics and philosophy, thought I was going to do a PhD, decided to get the heck out of Dodge uh, with that track, stalled for a master's program over in London uh, at the LSE, came back to the States, did a short fellowship at the National Science Foundation, where kind of Got a bird's eye view over how the government makes funding decisions for academic disciplines like in economics, decision risk management sciences. So did a lot of stuff on game theory, uh, science organizations, um, and then got started management consulting uh, with a startup in DC uh, where I live. So kind of in that, in that ecosystem. Um, the principal question that we try to answer over the course of a lot of different projects for a lot of different clients, which touch on a lot of different areas, is really trying to understand and assess rigorously how prepared is the US government and also private entities uh, for bad scenarios? So I did a lot of work both on a quantitative side in terms of um, assessment of national preparedness at different levels uh, of government, as well as um, kind of exercises, essentially like war games. So doing the what if role-playing scenarios uh, with really, I mean, everyone from kind of small level, um, you know, agency tactical folks, all the way up to kind of the cabinet, National Security Council sorts of things, everything from tabletop exercises where you just sit around at a table and chat about things under different scenarios to sort of full scale exercises where hundreds and not thousands of people are, you know, actively sort of simulating responses to different scenarios. These are everything from, you know, typical things, hurricanes, earthquakes, to, you know, bad, uh, bad scenarios like cyber attacks, um, improvised nuclear devices, uh, all out nuclear war. So, so, uh, so can talk about all that sort of stuff, but that's kind of my more professional background. I kind of got into Bitcoin, I mean, more as a lurker um, and really started to engage more publicly on Twitter about a year ago when I saw that it was gonna become more macroeconomically and geopolitically relevant. And that's where I felt I could help kind of bridge the conversation between um, kind of the Bitcoin community and obviously where we think it's going to be going and going to play that sort of macroeconomic, macroeconomic and geopolitically important role in the future. And I think the policy community in DC that is certainly um, kind of lagging behind in their, their level of understanding. Um, and it's really by making that kind of translation uh, and helping to sort of match, match um, kind of perceptions against reality. Um, uh, from those different perspectives. So that's kind of how, how I got into this uh, kind of more as just like a commentator on Twitter. Uh, and then I sort of had some ideas about how to formalize that and sort of um, explicate those ideas in long form. Uh, and as sort of I was putting this uh, kind of together, I was approached by some of the folks that were uh, putting together the Bitcoin Policy Institute, as sort of this proof of concept think tank uh, to try to put out uh, you know, more rigorous long form research and analysis to help shape kind of the broader policy conversation about Bitcoin specifically. Uh, and, and they asked me to kind of contribute from a, like that national security, uh, international policy perspective. And, and so that's where I kind of, um, you know, further refine my ideas into that, in that white paper that, re that we released a few weeks ago, uh, which tried to kind of take a more uh, kind of strategic and systematic view of assessing how Bitcoin relates to US national security. So, um, yeah, it was kind of more of a, I went from a Twitter lurker to now commenting and I think, you know, bringing at least what I think is a relevant perspective from from um, from my background on those questions. So that's the bluff. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, who specifically then um, are these, you know, the policy conversation uh, that you mentioned, where is that taking place? Who, what's your target audience for this paper? And um, also, I wanted to get into, uh, with that target audience in mind, how did you design like the overall structure? Because it is extremely comprehensive. Yeah. And so I, when I was thinking about these ideas, you know, I, I talk with, you know, my clients and my, my, my bosses who have held senior positions in government. And, you know, I was sort of writing it for them, uh, sort of 
what what would they think about this sort of thing? Um, and obviously their perceptions of Bitcoin are I think just like sort of the pre-coiner perspective, which is sort of what they see in the news. Um, you know, very few, I think, in that part of the government have really done kind of a deep dive. Um, so I wanted to kind of give them an analytical primer. First off, what is Bitcoin? So I try to spend some time to, to, to talk about that. Um, and then I wanted to kind of review kind of the status quo for American power in 2022 in the context of its evolution really since, since World War II. I mean, that's kind of the, that period from post Bretton Woods to now is sort of the key historical period upon which kind of our current institutional framework, our monetary system, the international system is basically been predicated. Um, and I think this year has identified a number of you know, potential strains and fractures um, in that system. And Bitcoin, I think is gonna play a key role in how that, how that, how that dynamic um, evolves. So that's kind of was the motivation for kind of giving that upfront kind of what is Bitcoin primer. Um, but I really anchored the structure of the, of, of the, of the paper around uh, uh, President Biden's um, International Security Strategic Guidance, which is a document that most presidents put out when they essentially come into office, essentially saying, here's how I think about the world, here's how I think about US national security. It's like a very strategic high-level document. But, but in that document, they sort of lay out a framework for kind of how they think about what are the pillars of national security. And I felt like it was a pretty straightforward thing to read those and be like, well, actually, there's a compelling argument to make about how Bitcoin supports each of those specific national security objectives that are identified in that document. So that's kind of how I, how I base the structure of, of the paper on, is essentially taking kind of three, three key elements of the national security strategic guidance, essentially um, enduring sources of national strength, like our, our, our economic strength, countering our adversaries, in particular China, um, and, and basically spreading our values, right? Ensuring that American values um, are, are, are reinforced uh, around the world and, and at home. So I felt like those were pretty clear kind of three um, angles of attack to take, take uh, and bring Bitcoin into. And so that's how I kind of built the argument. Um, and that's kind of the goal is really not to necessarily like make policy recommendations. I wouldn't go into that paper to say like, this is the, you know, like legislative to-do list. I was not my intent to kind of tell Congress or anyone to kind of make very specific policy about what a CBDC should or shouldn't be. Um, it was much more to kind of zoom out from a strategic perspective and take a look at Bitcoin's relevance and role in supporting newish national security objectives kind of at that, at that kind of 10,000 foot level. So um, that's kind of the, the, the goal is and then just get it out there, have people read it and have it be like a useful kind of reasonably comprehensive primer uh, for folks in the kind of national security community that may, may know things about Bitcoin, but maybe haven't thought about it uh, from a number of these different perspectives. Awesome. Yeah, I would like to um, read a little quote here from the essay and then get your thoughts on it to expand. This is specifically about uh, how Bitcoin can help the U.S. achieve these goals. So uh, Bitcoin could help reinvigorate our domestic economy, regain the strategic initiative, and buttress the global rules-based international order upon which the prosperity of our citizens is secured. So can you expand on each of those points, maybe? Yes. Uh, so I think to start, you know, our economic strength is a key to our national security, right? Like we are the global superpower and have been for a number of decades because our economy has been the largest economy in the world. Um, and that's, you know, the strength of our economy is, uh, you know, traced to a lot of different things. But fundamentally, it's about, you know, where do folks want to put their capital uh, to work in our, in, our, in our equity markets, in our private equity markets, where you want to start a business around the world, rule of law, being able to attract capital and be able to run your business. You know, that's been a key sort of anchor of American strength. Um, you know, and I think, you know, there's a key argument to make about how Bitcoin is just a manifestation of that, right? There's a reason why Bitcoin uh, companies are flourishing in the United States. Like Bitcoin miners, uh, you know, realized that maybe China wasn't the most safe political jurisdiction to set up shop and, and, they, and they relocated uh, forcefully. Uh, but I think now that they, there's a sort of a burgeoning industry now in America. So there's a lot of the hard economic um, kind of benefits that Bitcoin's appreciation brings, both from kind of the kind of just the corporate equity, um, uh, private equity, kind of uh, publicly listed capital uh, appreciation. But also, I think the fact that we have you know, probably, you know, a good chunk, if not the majority of actual Bitcoin held by Americans. So Bitcoin monetizes, you know, we stand to gain disproportionately from its monetization relative to countries that don't have as much Bitcoin. So uh, to the extent that the richer Americans are, the more our economy is strong, it's a pretty straightforward argument. Um, and I think, uh, so, but looking overseas, I think we're confronting 
you know, a pretty challenging geopolitical environment, right? Our, our principal adversary, China, um, you know, has, has sort of dramatically, uh, you know, relative to sort of historical timeframes, emerged to sort of challenge a status quo uh, international system. And, and you know, all, all this sort of, you know, headlines are essentially manifestations of China seeking to establish themselves as a peer competitor on the global stage. And, and that manifests both in kind of hard economic competition, uh, trade, uh, you know, subterfuge, uh, covert uh, uh, sort of gray war, espionage, sort of the whole panoply of instruments of national power that states engage in is now going to be kind of the tools of the trade as China kind of seeks to kind of pry their way in and, and sort of overturn the sort of um, US-led international order. And I think it's a complicated argument, but the bottom line is essentially China, uh, uh, you know, one saw in 2013 um, a pivot in how they approached the dollar system, specifically the treasury system, where they sort of ceased net accumulating treasuries from our trade deficit um, by recycling dollars into our debt, and instead relent those dollars as part of an ambitious program of overseas dollar-denominated uh, lending uh, called the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which has expanded dramatically in the past 10 years uh, to to help them acquire hard assets, secure uh, you know, critical infrastructure, ports, railways, um, as well as sort of spread soft, you know, influence political corruption along the way, using our dollars to do that. Behind the, the rail that that's being laid is the digital yuan. So they have a sort of an authoritarianism as a service project underway, where essentially they're, they're, they're offering these sort of technologies, uh, including the DCEP, the digital yuan, alongside sort of technologies and tools of surveillance and authoritarian control uh, to governments around the world and say, here's the, here's the whole package, basically. Uh, you know, we'll give you basically all the tools, the funding, the mechanisms, the technology suite to help you, one, sort of get into the 21st century, um, but using sort of the digital ecosystem that China sets up. Um, and we get to help keep you in power, basically. Uh, and that's an attractive uh, proposition just to a lot of authoritarian governments around the world. Uh, and so to the extent that that is a, one, like a strategic challenge to the United States in some of those areas, you know, Africa, Middle East, South Asia, even in South America, our sort of Monroe Doctrine backyard, uh, per se, um, you know, that's something that, you know, we, if you're like thinking uh, from the perspective of, you know, someone in DC, that's a challenge to you. But even if you're just thinking from the perspective of human rights, it's also it's also a problem, right? You would prefer not to have you know developing countries get ensnared in kind of the authoritarian trap uh, of these technologies that are being adopted by some of these um, oppressive governments around the world. So the extent that Bitcoin, in its organic adoption by uh, those developing countries, alongside a growing and kind of synergistically growing dollar-based stablecoin system. Is, is sort of uh, an emerging challenger that's art that's sort of being by revealed preference uh, adopted by by developing country populations um, as a direct antagonist to to the to the, to the digital yuan. Uh, so in a sense, it's fighting the battle that the U.S. isn't fighting, uh, and in fact, probably shouldn't fight using the sort of the same tools that China's fighting. You're not going to out authoritarian or out totalitarian the Chinese CBDC with your own CBDC. Uh, here is essentially a freedom coin and a, and a and a sort of an open ecosystem. Of, of dollar-based assets that are growing in adoption um, on their own uh, by emerging markets and that are sort of developing um, kind of a, a uh, um, like a mitigation against uh, some of these um, some of these efforts by China to kind of impose a, a form of digital a sort of uh, totalitarianism. So, so that kind of mixed the two the two things, right? Countering countering our adversaries, but also you know uh, buttressing kind of our our commitment to to human rights at the same time, but doing it in a tangible way, right? Not just like um, you know airdropping in uh, you know some aid money, but actually there's a tool. You know, like all you need is a smartphone. All you need is a you know um, kind of a relatively uh, quick uh, read up uh, on how to use like the Moon Wallet, and you know you can transact. Um, and so yeah, that was kind of the key legs of the argument were uh, developing. Um, uh, countries adopting it as a counter to the, the digital yuan, but also spreading kind of, um, you know, American values like freedom of speech, property rights for folks that don't have property rights, um, putting a reserve asset in the hands of people around the world that can't hold treasury securities. Um, and so I think that is a, I think a key development that, um, that you know, overall is, is, is supportive of U.S. national security objectives, um, even if it's not necessarily being led by the United States. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's, you know, that's something that is, is, is net positive from Bitcoin's uh, effect on the world. So Matt, really, really thorough answer. And again, I really enjoyed the article and the subsequent podcast that you've been doing. I've been kind of doing a deep dive on it. And there's so many things of 
that we agree on, uh, especially about, you know, the one, two punch that is Bitcoin plus USD stable coins. Uh, so I'm sure Ansel is going to want to dive into that. He's one of the first analysts that actually turned me onto this thesis back in 2017. So uh, Ansel has been pounding <laughs> on this drum for a long time, uh, but I want to get your sense, you know, Bic, you, you phrase it this way in the Peter McCormick podcast that, you know, there's really two options. There's kind of voice or exit and Bitcoiners like to flex the fact that we can exit with this technology, but we haven't really tried to voice in our jurisdictions until very recently. Now there's a very strong effort. Uh, it's kind of a, some people love it. Some people hate it. Um, but ultimately it's, it's about communicating Bitcoin's values. Obviously, you know, you are very strong at communicating Bitcoin's values uh, to a certain subsect within government. Um, and I guess my question is, how, what would you say to the Bitcoiners that are like extremely anti-communicating with uh, the existing government, with the U.S. government, with governments, you know, their local jurisdictions? Uh, what, what would you say to them? And, um, you know, how, how can people... Uh, communicate to these stakeholders effectively. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, everyone can play their own strengths, right? Like, um, I don't think there's necessarily one strategy that everyone has to adopt. Um, and I think depending on where you are, what your political objectives are, what your political interests are, you know, sort of, I'm a pluralist at heart, right? So let a thousand flowers bloom, right? Um, like from my personal perspective, the reason why I've sort of engaged in this particular way is yeah, to your point, like, Bitcoin is a unique form of digital um, wealth that allows you a new form of exit, or at least lowers the friction costs associated with political exit than, ex than has existed before. And I think that's because that's so unique and novel, it's only become an anchor of how sort of Bitcoiners think about their engagement in the political process, right? I can just get the 12, 24 words in my head and see phrase and I can bounce if this jurisdiction um, isn't uh, to my liking. And for those folks that um, you know have lifestyles and social circumstances that, uh, that, that that works for, then that's great, right? I think that's a useful aspect of the technology that gives them a form of autonomy that didn't exist before. But for the folks that, 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 uh, that have um, an anchor in their community, that have um, family and friends and uh, like where they live, and would prefer not to have to pack up everything and go to a new state or country, you know, those have transaction costs. And therefore those costs rationally motivate you to engage in voice in actively um, expressing your political viewpoints to, to, the, to the authorities under which uh, you, the, whose jurisdiction um, you, you reside. And if you live in a jurisdiction that is uh, nominally democratic and representative, then you, know, you should uh, you know, seek to leverage those tools uh, and, and, and make your voice heard. Um, and I think that's, you know, everyone's in different situ situation. Everyone can sort of make that judgment on their own. Um, and I just think, you know, I mean, to be honest, I think folks tend to um, underestimate how easy that is and actually how low cost it is relative to the reward of engaging that type of voice relative to the cost of exit, right? I think if you were to weigh those rationally, right, like cost of exit versus cost of voice, uh, risk reward, you know, at least in, in the United States, like if you're in Russia or you're, you know, you're in a different situation, yeah, like your cost of voice is probably pretty high as a Bitcoiner uh, and you're, you know, getting out would be certainly a higher risk reward. <laughs> um, and certain jurisdictions around, around the world, you know, people could weigh those uh, differently. I think in the United States in particular at this point in time, uh, you know, the, the cost benefit of voice relative to exit has been has never been higher. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, it behooves the folks that, you know, feel like they can engage in that and they're motivated as such to, uh, you know, let their voice be heard. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you go lobby in Congress or, or what have you it just means essentially, you know, speak up for Bitcoin to whoever you feel like it. Um, and I think Bitcoiners are usually no shrinking violets when it comes to that. So it's just a matter of articulating the message you want folks to hear. Well, I, I kind of can speak for the exit people a little bit. I don't, uh, for years, I didn't like uh, stuff that like Coin Center and others were doing because I don't like closed door meetings. Mm -hmm. um, your, your stuff that's open source and it's out there for everybody. Uh, like you have said before, people can cite it and, you know, it's out there in the public discourse. That's a much different thing. It's, it's a much better way to engage with uh, the government. I, I, I think most of Bitcoiners that would choose exit really would choose just no backdoor meetings uh, mm -hmm. with congressmen and things. So uh, I just wanted to add that in there from, 
from the Bitcoiners perspective. Uh, I wanted to kind of shift a little bit to uh, the policy discussion in your essay or the section. And uh, you have a data point in here that I thought was very interesting. Uh, 16% of US adults own Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Um, I think that's a very huge number considering I remember when it was 1%, but um, I think there's a better demographic. Like um, what about the politically influential people? Mm-hmm. Uh, what this would be, you know, state representatives or federal representatives, uh, business leaders, um, media personalities, uh, you name it, mm-hmm. millionaires, billionaires. What percentage of that class of people do you think owns Bitcoin? Is it more than 16% or less? And does it matter? Um, um, I, I really don't know. I mean, that's I, I, if they if they did, I, I mean, if there's a data set on that, I'd, I'd love to see it. Uh, probably would, would be, uh, I'm sure those folks would not necessarily make that too public. Um, but I, I think your point is well taken in the sense that there's a, um, there's a there's an asymmetry in terms of the the the, the marginal impact of orange pilling, yeah. right? Like yep. like uh, as the sort of Michael Saylor example shows, right? I, I and I think I talked about this on even Dennis Porter's podcast, like the strategic value of selective like high value target orange pilling cannot be underestimated, right? Like all and we, we're talking about like folks that are essentially in a modern media environment, right? Just the way things exist now, right? Um, social signals, social proof is how kind of the Overton window gets moved, right? And and that can go for the negative or for the positive, right? You can have Elon Musk be like the new uh, Bitcoin person, and then he can, you know, turn on a dime and it's a, you know, not so positive outcome. So there's caution to be made there, right? Like strategic orange pilling can blow up in your face, uh, especially folks like, you know, Eric Adams, who I think are well-meaning, but maybe probably didn't study exactly what what Bitcoin is <laughs> uh, as, as in-depth as, as, as some of the other folks. Um, who kind of have uh, kind of articulated kind of a particular political viewpoint uh, on Bitcoin. So I do think it does matter, um, you know, like as like any like any sort of social movement in a sense, right? Like as sort of Bitcoin adoption manifests itself, uh, there's going to be certain public figures that can sort of move that along faster. Um, now, you know, you just it is what it is, right? I don't think there's any secret control or sort of special master plan for how you would do that, right? Like, oh, this is the sequence. We got to get these key influencers to tweet about Bitcoin. Like, I, I don't think that's going to move the needle uh, or really should be the strategy. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, to your point, like in Congress, for example, right? Like they're being educated on this subject, right? Um, and uh, it doesn't take a whole lot of like key senators to change their opinion on something like this for like, really bad legislation to just be rendered moot, right? Because of the filibuster. And so like, that's like one very specific thing where it's like 10 senators that became orange pilled out of just the hundred pretty much has a regulatory moat, you know, indefinitely, right? So like, again, maybe people don't care about that, right? Bitcoin is gonna survive and thrive no matter what, right? But just from like a low hanging fruit perspective, 10 people getting orange pilled in a particular in, in particular organization, I don't know, like that seems like a pretty, pretty high ROI uh, uh, sort of orange pilling. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that's that's interesting. Um, I don't know, like it's gonna happen, it's gonna evolve. This is just what Bitcoin does is just, you know, it, it, this is the adoption curve. Um, you're just gonna see that, um, which also means you're gonna see people that, you know, don't understand Bitcoin and start tweeting up Bitcoin. It's just gonna happen, right? Like that's, that's, that's part of its um, growth, right? If it's gonna become everyone's money, then everyone's gonna use it, talk about it. Yeah. And, um like you touched on there, the policy from the policy perspective, and you said a regulatory moat. Um, so like in, in that other podcast, um, what Bitcoin did, you use the term bad policy. And I think it was like the likelihood of bad policy in the mm-hmm. near future or something like that. Um, I wanted to expand that into, is that window, is the window for bad policy closing? And, and will it close faster if we get these politically influential people? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, if we build that regulatory mm-hmm. moat, um, is that window closing and how far away from closing to bad policy? And by bad policy, I mean um, banning, confiscation, crimin- criminalizing, mm-hmm. things like that. Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't you know, predict. Uh, and I'm, 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 not, I'm not an expert on every single like inside lo- baseball lobbyist who's, like, who's on the fence and who would vote. I, I don't know the, the details there. Um, but I would say more generally speaking, I would separate kind of the political side, like Congress and congressional representatives. And, you know, there's a lot of really, you know, 
I think positive things that have just happened in the past 12 months, right? Like just like, uh, you know, Cynthia Lum is partnering with, uh, with Senator Gillibrand like last week at the political live thing, talking about releasing this framework for digital assets. I mean, that was an exceptionally positive thing, like bipartisan, everyone seemed to be, you know, you can quibble with details, little, little things under the, under the surface that I'm sure are gonna be contentious, but like generally speaking, that was, I think, a you know, massively positive indicator of how things are just generally moving in terms of the window of policy uh, on, in digital assets and Bitcoin in particular, seems to be trending, trending in the right direction, right? Now, the things that we just saw today with kind of the ripple thing and the energy FUD, like that's gonna happen, right? But that just shows the industry growing up and it's just like people have money and they're gonna throw their vanity projects at the wall. Just, you know, you should be in DC and just take the subway and see how many crazy ads you see from random interest groups that just fund like nonsense all the time. So that happens um, with, with every sort of issue, even things that are totally obscure. Um, people will, you know, raise money and throw, throw, throw an advertising campaign together. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna have much policy impact. Um, so that's kind of the one side on the like the, the congressional you know legislative process again that's going to move but i think positive indicators there the executive order is sort of a separate piece which is sort of the executive branch um you know much more kind of inside the bureaucracy you know uh trying to get their handle on this and i think the executive order you know i won't give the full commentary but essentially you know net positive in the sense that there could have been a lot of bad stuff that went in there that wasn't in there um and I think it was an indicator of, you know, just how, you know, serious that they are taking this now and they have to take this now. Uh, it's not going away. Um, it's gonna become a growing uh, economic and, uh, and political force. And I think they're just trying to get smart on it. Um, so yeah, I mean, there could be mistakes, bad policy, you know, happens. Uh, when I was speaking in that context, it was really the fact that sometimes you have agencies, they got tasked writing this report, you have to write it really quickly it, you know, gets, you know, delegated down the line to some guy who's just like, I got to Google my way to write this thing in a month. <laughs> and he Googles, you know, Bitcoin energy, and he goes to the, you know, digital economist website and just copies and pastes what he sees there, right? So like, that's, that is like the worst case in terms of like bad policy. I don't think it's malevolent, right? It'd just be like, essentially someone in the government who maybe isn't an expert on this issue gets tapped with this and is under a deadline and has to put it together. Um, I think there's enough checks along the way that like obvious small ball errors would be corrected. Um, and that's part of what we're trying to do to Bitcoin policy is just put out rigorous material to help inform those broader, uh, that broader understanding and to be a resource uh, for different uh, folks to go to and say, hey, like here's an actual like, like well-researched analysis of Bitcoin's energy use that's like actually you know has data sources and sites uh, and it isn't just someone's random medium posts right um and that's i think you know just essentially getting that sort of content out there so policymakers, decision makers have access to sort of accurate facts um i think that's you know like you know there's a lot of noise but like bitcoin bitcoin mining is a fundamentally good story and so you know the truth comes out and the truth is a good story right there's gonna be noise and smears and all sorts of stuff happening along the way but you know, the signal is getting stronger. Um, Bitcoin mining is, is growing um, dramatically and it, it just can't be ignored. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm net optimistic, although, yeah, I mean, there could be random things that happen that, that seem like a step backwards, but I think the, the, the trend is clear and positive. So Matt, I wanna take a slight pivot and talk about Europe because on this show, we talk about Europe in the context of their interest in CBDCs being justified based on how much progress Tether and USD stablecoins are making and the Euro's inability to really have an organic market outside of whatever the ECB is doing. Um, I'm kind of curious what your outlook on, on Europe is and uh, where you expect um, kind of stablecoins to continue to uh, make progress. Tough question. I, I don't have any like unique uh, data to cite. Uh, I think fundamentally that's like a data question, right? You would need to do like some serious surveys, um, country by country analysis, regulatory analysis, to try to answer that. And I think that sort of analysis kind of you know needs to be done um, as the industry matures. I, I do think there were some markers, right? Just last week, the um, you know the European Commission was reviewing some proposed legislation in committee about um, proof of work that some folks were pretty pessimistic about passing and it didn't pass, uh, which I was surprised by, right? Just, just being a lay observer of the European Commission, not an expert by any means of what goes on in Brussels. Um, you know, they are you know, along that, the spectrum is Bitcoin versus CBDC. They're definitely more on the CBDC green spectrum 
which is sort of latent hostility to Bitcoin relative to the United States, I think. Uh, so the fact that it didn't pass through committee was I, I was surprising and, and positive. Um, you know, there's another thing coming up about like self-hosted wallets and the travel rule and FATA stuff. And, you know, I think that's going to be some of the, you know, where they're going to use the sanctions, a, 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 you know, AML, KYC, cudgel to try to like ring fence Bitcoin, right? Like there's essentially it's a, it's a growing challenge to their, to their structural control. And in, in, in the EU, it's been a challenge before Bitcoin or, or stable coins of how do they, create this, some semblance of a political unity out of this fractious, uh, historically warring set of states. Uh, and so they're especially conscious of anything that could sort of upset the fragile political unity they've created, which was really cemented by the euro, right? Like creating the European common market, introducing the euro, um, you know, the target two system was, was basically the key way that they, they think they prevented war in Europe, right? And notably the war happens on the boundaries of that political unit. Um, so for, I think from their perspective, right, like Bitcoin and even dollars, dollar-based stable coins is kind of a challenge to that inherent monetary union, which is what underpins the political union. So I can recognize why they're inherently suspicious or threatened by it. They were threatened by the dollar for the same reason, right? Like, um, and I think the Euro has been trying to carve out for themselves uh, like a, a role in the international monetary system as a monetary and economic block that can negotiate trade deals, that can um, sort of engage as a quasi peer in the, in, the economic, in the global political system with, you know, like an emerging Asian bloc center on China and the US kind of transatlantic alliance with, with, uh, with, with Britain. So yeah, I mean, that's a long-winded answer. I don't know how stable coins per se are gonna evolve, but I think it's, you gotta think about it in the context of the economic and political history of the EU and the role of the Euro as a sort of a, it's a political currency. Um, not like the dollar, a dollar has been around for hundred, you know, centuries um, and gone through a lot of different manifestations in terms of its underlying backing, uh, but, but is, you know, fundamentally of a different nature politically than the Euro, which is a political currency. Uh, and so, and it's brand new, right? I mean, relatively speaking. So I think that that has to be factored into how they're gonna perceive uh, the rapid growth of things like dollar stable coins, um, Tether and Bitcoin. Um, they're just gonna be naturally much more like hesitant, suspicious, risk averse, um, and much more protective of their sort of fragile political economic uh, union because of that. Not to mention, you know, the under severe strain, <laughs> uh, regardless, right, with energy dependence and, uh, you know, runaway debts and inflation. So um, they got a lot on their plate. Have you noticed that, um, like the Fed stiff arming just conversation at all about CBDCs? I mean, I've, I've watched uh, Powell talked multiple times over the last four years. And every time he's talked about it, he's like, well, we have a research team on that, you know, where the CBD, where the ECB is just all in. We, we this is a, like a national security, but it's a, a entity security issue. Uh, and so um, have you noticed that? And what do you take from that? Do you think um, uh, specifically with this executive order, Mm -hmm. Is anything going to come of this or is the Fed just going to say, well, you know, we looked at it. We've already made our de determination. Uh, I mean, I think you're seeing the political fight that's underway that's behind the scenes. And I don't know where the balance of power lies in that fight. I think we'll see. But you've been but you've seen not just Chairman Powell, but some of his officials like Waller came out last week and said he sees no reason to have a CBDC. Um, uh, the previous uh, vice chair for supervision, Randy Quarles, gave a speech. I think it might have been his departing speech or one of his other speeches, um, but he was also like very well respected. Where he basically actually outlined essentially like our thesis, which is that proliferation of dollar-based stable coins is good for the United States, good for the dollar, and there's like no reason to have a central bank digital currency, right? Like let the private market innovate and and you know put in regulations, make sure that it's properly supervised as you know the regulators would um, would push for uh, but I think the Fed is very concerned about getting trapped in a political vice where you know as the politicization of money continues to accelerate that would fundamentally make the Fed a political institution right like these types of transactions now have to be blacklisted by the Fed and they're going to take congressional instruction to do that and the Fed does not want that <laughs> I think the Fed even, I remember Chairman Powell a few months ago, you know, when he was interviewed after they released the white paper, you know, we're talking about, you know, that's not their role. They don't want to have any part in that, right? Um, and so, yeah, fundamentally, I think they're trying to stay out of that. There's folks, I think, in the Elizabeth Warren wing 
you know, who are really aggressively pushing the people's ledger. Uh, and, you know, that is, is, I think, their kind of, in their view, a way to salvage something like an MMT style, um, you know, economic uh, system, which, you know, I think doesn't seem like it's got a whole lot of political traction. I think that was sort of manifested in the EO where, you know, I'm sure there was a fight, right? Like how strong is the EO going to be on a CBDC and how strong is, is the White House going to come out? And I'm sure the Warren people were saying, you know, we're going to have a CBDC in 200 days. And then everyone else is like, nah, slowly roll. So they compromise and I'm sure said, you know, we'll write a report on it and we'll sort of heavily encourage the Fed to take another look uh, at it uh, and sort of punt it for six or nine months. Um, but I think it's going to come up. Uh, I'm sure, you know, it's going to be part of some future legislation. It's going to become a political topic. Uh, but I think, generally speaking, I'm not sure what the appetite is. Um, but there could be, there's a little, I'm not an expert, but there's like, there's, it's not like a binary. It's like people's ledger, central CBDC, or nothing. There's like different models. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways you could structure something like a wholesale CBDC that's essentially just like an interbank, you know, upgrade to Fedwire reserve settlement system on the blockchain or whatever. Um, that uh, something that actually Britain, I think, just introduced as a company that got a, a bunch of banks um, in Britain to sort of use a digital ledger to, to settle kind of reserve imbalances, which just seemed like branding. Um, but but yeah, that's that could be what you see as like JPM coin as just like a way that other banks settle with the with each other, but retail, you know, doesn't get Fed coin on their on their phones um, the way that you know so certain folks would want. Um, so that's I think where the fight is, whether it's all just an upgrade to Fedwire, how much retail facing element of it there is, um, how much is there going to be like a whitelisted stablecoin, you know, moat that gets that gets carved out. Um, but yeah, but to your point, like, I do think everyone though sees the growth of stable coins as a way to stuff treasuries into a new buyer. Like, I think that's a key point is that like, one of the parts of regulation is you would mandate that those regulated approved stable coin issuers have to have cash equivalent reserves, namely US treasuries or other high quality uh, liquid assets, which in a, an environment where there's sort of, uh, you know, struggling sources of external demand for US debt issuance, Stablecoin growth is a sort of one of those bright spots of like, hey, here's another growing, you know, uh, you know, demand that we can sort of stuff more treasuries into, <laughs> and find another trillion dollars of a uh, of a uh, balance sheet to to to, to stuff uh, treasuries without the Fed having to monetize it all. So, I could see that being a way they look they look at it as just a way to, you know, cram more uh, treasuries into someone's balance sheet. It would, I think it would be advantageous for them to think of it that way and to act on it just because bootstrapping a new CBDC uh, is very, very difficult. It's much easier for them to solve a lot of their problems by just kind of regulating and, 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 and kind of making the current stablecoin market a part of what they're doing. Not advocating for that, but I definitely see that as the path of least resistance, which probably is what is going to happen. I'm going to hand it back to Ansel. I think he has one more question, and then we're going to have to wrap it up because you have a hard stop, Matt. I, I, I can go for about 10 more minutes if you want. Yeah. Okay, okay cool. so I guess we get some, we got a little bit more than go for it. Ansel. Maybe two questions. All right. Yeah, uh, I think that's interesting. So the USD, uh, US Treasury is backing the stable coins. Um, and that kind of maybe gives room for Bitcoin to back a stable coin, at least maybe be in the reserves of a stable coin. And then it opens the Overton window for the Fed to add Bitcoin to their reserves. What do you think of that idea? And do you see uh, anytime in the near future, are we going to be talking about the Fed adding Bitcoin to their reserves? I have no idea. I think it would have to, there could be a major shakeup in the global economic system for that to even be countenanced. Um, and if they were to do that, like the mechanics of that, they'd have to hold some sort of special purpose. Like the reason that Fed buys something is usually to prevent stress in that market, right? So like the Fed buys crappy mortgages because no one else wants them. The Fed buys treasuries because no one else wants them. Like the Fed buys these things and give people reserves because people want reserves, they want liquid assets. So the Fed buying Bitcoin, I, I don't know what's, what purpose that would serve other than raise the price of Bitcoin, which might be a good strategy if you want to just jack up the price of Bitcoin and try to like, um, you know, if this, again, this is not necessarily my prediction, but what you see in the, in the, the economic system right now is a real um, kind of uh, game of chicken, you could say, between that's centered really in Europe and sort of the, the crux of that fight is over right now paying for Russian gas with um, 
with rubles or, or, or some sort of gold swap. Uh, and that's like what you see is sort of this emerging cleavage between what was a relatively unified dollar dominant based system, which was predicated on treasuries being the settlement um, reserve currency, essentially uh, reserve asset, right? Where people hold, hold their savings. Um, and so the treasury security is what the world runs on. Um, that's what people want to hold. That's the funding collateral for every transaction uh, of, of any particular internet size. Um, and so this is where I think folks need to understand the difference between the dollar status as the global reserve currency as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, uh, and the treasury status as the global uh, reserve asset where people hold their accumulated savings and wealth um, and use the treasury as a sort of deep and liquid asset to be able to do large international, to settle international trade imbalances, right? That's sort of the function of the treasury market. And I think what you're seeing since March, 2020 is that that market has been, is getting exceptionally more unstable, uh, right? If, if, which is we don't want, it's like, that's the foundation of the global economic system. You had stress and off the runs in March, 2020, the Fed had to do all these emergency liquidity facilities, open up things like at the standing repo facility, the RRP, the, the, the FIMA, which is sort of for, for foreign international monetary authorities, uh, basically, Anywhere that if anyone ever wanted to sell treasuries, they could find a willing buyer in, in the treasury. But we're finding out just the past few weeks that that's, that system's not perfect. Um, there's a lot of choke points and sort of shallowness and, and illiquidity in the treasury market. And I only say that because where Bitcoin could evolve to playing that sort of reserve asset role is, is if the treasury market itself stops functioning in that capacity, right? If folks just need a more liquid reserve asset. And that's where that shift from you know, inside money Right, counterparty risk associated with the treasury system, you know, starts to raise these conversations about, uh, you know, Brett Woods three, right? Is there going to be a shift to a commodity gold oil back standard or emerging monetary blocks uh, between Eurasia and kind of the kind of the oceanic system uh, that sort of diverge fundamentally? I don't know. There's lots of different ways that could evolve, but in any of those scenarios where Bitcoin does evolve into becoming a globally adopted reserve asset, whether it's held by the Fed or not, I think is somewhat irrelevant. If the majority of American citizens hold it as a reserve asset. I think that's the most powerful part about Bitcoin is that unlike a treasury security, like, like you can buy a bond, but it sits in your Schwab account. Most people around the world can't buy US treasury securities. Like the vast majority of US treasury securities are owned by institutions and governments. And so like reserve assets, which are the most pristine collateral liquid um, uh, form of money that underpins global system are structurally trapped in, in and only elite institutions. I think the most dramatic effect of Bitcoin would be it's a it's people's it's people's reserve asset. Like anyone around the world can own a chunk of that reserve asset. Um, and I think that's a fundamentally. So you could see like you know governments making certain decisions about what's suitable for them on a, on, on like a lag because they're going to be like the last movers there. And individual citizens say this is where I want to hold my reserve asset uh, instead of a deposit at Bank of America, <laughs> right? Um, that has all of my cash savings, I'm gonna take a chunk of it and hold what I don't need for my you know, daily transactions or my liquidity needs over some time horizon. I'm gonna hold that in, in a Bitcoin reserve. Um, so like that's the more fundamental phenomenon I think that at scale is gonna dramatically have economic effects. The Fed will be the last to do that. Um, and even if they do, it'd be it, like the game would have already moved, right? Like they'll just be like recognizing reality will have already, um, reached a point where Bitcoin is, you know, the dominant form of, 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 of reserve savings. So that's where I would look. I wouldn't look to the Fed to be the first mover there. Well, should I open up a whole new topic or should we, uh, I'm, I'm, good, for, I'm good for one more. Okay. Let's, let's open up a whole new topic. And this is, um, uh, the Fed and the upcoming perhaps policy error, if you want to call it that, or whatever they're talking about, you know, hiking rates and possibly quantitative tightening uh, right when I didn't even check before I came on here, but the the yield curve was in the process of inverting right now. So are they going to be able to hike all these times? Do you expect? And uh, I don't know. I just think it's um, they're data dependent. So that means they're followers. But if we have an inverted yield curve and we're sliding into recession, you know, how are what is the way to follow the market? Um, what do you think is going to happen? Can they raise all these times? So uh, I'd say this is a highly nonlinear system that people tend to project kind of linear thinking to, right? In the sense of there is a schedule of Fed meetings and how many dips are they going to raise at each meeting as if it's some, you know, linear curve? Is it 25 to 50 here, here, here? When I think fundamentally it's like, um, 
you know, I, I, I study physics in my background. So it's like it's a nonlinear dynamic coupled system where you have feedback loops that reinforce each other and can lead to failure cascades. And it, you have sort of a, a regime of sort of false stability where, you know, any particular perturbation doesn't result in any dramatic effect until you reach some threshold point that because it's a complex, you know, irreducibly complex system, you don't know until you hit it. And then things break. And that's the system. That's what the Fed's doing. The, the, the treasury market, the global dollar system, um, the associated equity valuations and other asset valuations that are dependent on that are in this regime of false stability. And the Fed's trying to poke it with ever increasing bigger pokes and wait to see what breaks. <laughs> and so that's what they're going to do. They're just going to keep poking it and with ever increasing force to see what breaks. And then that, that's, that's going to be their excuse to say, well, we broke it and we've got to fix it now you know, dump, dump all the liquidity on the fire. Um, so, but it, because it's an irreducibly complex coupled dynamic system, you have no idea whether it's gonna be 25 bips or 200 bips, it's gonna do it. I think there is gonna be a threshold. You can look at the trend lines that the, that the like, because the amount of debt, because the amount of leverage, just the servicing capacity of the world, which is the dollar system to uh, pay higher interest rates is like increasingly lower. Like that ceiling is just sort of structurally on a downtrend. Um, so it's close. But I think if anyone predicted it, you know, um, you know, you're just making up a number. I think the thing that's interesting that I've been following recently has been the Bank of Japan, um, which sounds odd, but um, you know, Bank of Japan has been doing yield curve control for a number of years now. <laughs> you know, they've already, you know, they're they're like the leading edge, right? Whatever other central banks uh, are doing, you can say, okay, well, Bank of Japan did it ten years before. Um, they're just, you know, like the innovators of of central bank policy. Um, so they've been doing central, they've been doing yield curve, yield curve control, uh, and they're trying to keep the 10 year pegged at 25 bips. And just the past, you know, few weeks, it's been like testing them and they've had to do a bunch of unscheduled, um, uh, operations to, you know, enforce their, their yield curve control. And it's sort of dicey, uh, whether that's going to be effective. The reason why that matters is like the, the 10 year in the U S treasury mar market, is has like a, this high degree of coupling. If you look at the chart between uh, the ten-year and and, and USDJ um, JPY exchange rate, because essentially Japanese are like the biggest buyers of, of treasury debt still. Like they they they're the ones still buying because they got a bunch of retirees, they need liquid assets, um, they've got financial repression at home, so they need to get yield somewhere. Even if there's not much yield, it's like that spread matters to them, and so um, they're just basically taking their assets and. Buying, buying up uh, U.S. assets. Um, they have a massive net international investment position. So, like, the strength of the bid for the U.S. Treasury market, you know, comes from a lot of places. But the, at like the like the one rickety piece of the Jenga tower is the Japanese uh, demand. Uh, and weird things going on with the Japanese demand in their market have a ricochet over to ours. And so, I don't actually think the Fed is really the person that's going to topple this domino. It's going to be Kuroda in Japan because <laughs> um, uh, they're the one central bank that's still. Kind of easing. They're the ones still doing this easing. Everyone else is sort of going to this tightening path. And so if he decides he can't take it anymore, if they break their policy, if they, if they have to give up or yield curve control fails, then like he's been the one central bank giving cover or like sort of nominally allowing, you know, ECB and the Fed to kind of keep, you know, testing a little bit uh, with their tightening policy. Um, but if he breaks, then then their their efforts I think are going to fail. Um, but yeah, bottom line is they're they're trapped. 100%. It's just a matter of, you know, what happens. Um, I guess the last point I would say is, you can see this odd, odd dynamic happen where, you know, it's also, it's also about capital flows, right? In a, especially in an environment with global economic conflict and tension, uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of U.S. you know investors that have poured their money into other countries, specifically China, in the past decade, and so you're seeing a reversal of those flows as they price in political risk as they play price in counterparty risk, <laughs> finally, uh, and start to take American retiree money out of shady Chinese Ponzi schemes and relocate that home. So you could see perversely, and I don't know, I'm not an equity strategist or exactly how that's going to go, but like, even if there's something breaks in the treasury market, you can still see equities do decently well, just because people are taking their money out of these other jurisdictions and piling it into US, US perceived safety, right? Like buying Microsoft or buying some American mega cap something. Um, so I don't know, I, I'm not a trader. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a proprietary algorithm for that stuff. Um, but I think you could see weird dynamics because it's not just a pure macroeconomic thing, it's geopolitics. It's people looking at where they have their money and their investments and realizing, oh, wait a second, like that country could just get sanctioned and they could nationalize and I'll never get my money out. And 
and that has all sorts of knock-on effects um, beyond just what the Fed does at some meeting in the next few months. No, absolutely. That is exactly, it's about trust. And that's what the world is learning about is that the US dollar system as it is, and a lot of these other proprietary closed systems uh, will always be suspect in the, the trust department. Um, Matt, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. We will definitely be inviting you back on. So hopefully you can join us again. Um, but with that, I want to give you a chance to plug where people can learn more about you and the work that you're doing. Uh, so the mic is yours. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Uh, so uh, I'm on Twitter at Matthew underscore Pines, just first last name. So hit me up. Um, you know, love to chat. DMs are open. Um, but also, uh, so the Bitcoin Policy Institute is at btcpolicy.org. Uh, you know, relatively new. I think we just launched a website like a month or two ago. We've got some of our fact sheets and one pagers, as well as my uh, as well as my white paper uh, up there. Um, we're going to have some additional content coming out in the near future. Uh, but also, if you're interested in getting involved, uh, I think there's an email address you can put your email in there. Um, hit me up. We're just going to we're just sort of just getting this started. So I think we have. Uh, you know, some ambitions to, to really um, put, produce a lot of good content, um, kind of inform the broader policy and just general conversation on, on some of these key issues uh, in the coming year. So um, yeah, uh, hit me up, reach out. Um, questions? That's it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, we're going to have to have you back on. Uh, make sure to go check out Matt. Make sure to go check out the Bitcoin Policy Institute uh, I have been following very closely and they have been doing some really excellent work. Make sure to see all of us in person in Miami, Antel, Q, Chris, Matthew, and myself, as well as many, many of the other Bitcoiners that are in this space will all be there networking, speaking, having a great time, and you can still be there as well. So use promo code YTMAG to save 10% off. That is enough from me. Thanks again, Matthew, and uh, I'll send it over to you, Q. Thank <laughs> you.